0: On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. A couple of common themes across the front pages of this morning's newspapers. The main one uh, on the Sunday Independent is that the coalition will defy the critics and sign off on the deal to uh, build a new national maternity hospital on lands owned by St Vincent's Healthcare Group as opponents mounted a last ditch push to halt the move. We were told today by the Sun Independent that coalition ministers will sign off on the plans on Tuesday after a two-week delay, and despite continuing opposition to the move over concerns around the governance, ownership and ethos of the new facility, in a further move to assure the public, the government will this week announce a review of the planned hospital after its first year of operation to ensure that there are no issues with provision of terminations, sterilisations, fertility and other issues. There will be a report to the minister on whether there were any difficulties applying legislation in the first year of the hospital opening. A senior source said yesterday... With the hospital expected to take almost a decade to build, however, the planned review would probably take place around 2032. The decision by Catherine Martin, the deputy leader of the Green Party, to back the plan last Friday has paved the way for the Cabinet's sign-off, it says. However, there are some political concerns being voiced elsewhere in the papers because a Green Party TD, Nasa Harrigan, a backbench TD, says that she is not assured by letters of comfort given by the health minister and two hospitals uh, to her party colleague Catherine Martin. She is speaking to the Sunday Times today and she says that it is a difficult question for her. She says she is not reassured. Uh, All the reinsurances contained in those letters were already in the public sphere since Wednesday's Oireachtas Committee session with Stephen Donnelly, the HSE and others. She says her concern is not about Vatican influence. Absolutely, we should have answers to those questions, she says, but my concern is about public procurement and the corporate nature of this. I'm concerned that the business case hasn't been finalised by the Department of Health and where the figure of €1 billion, which is the proposed uh, construction budget, has come from. Harrigan feels that the government should back a Sinn Féin motion compelling ministers to ensure that the National Maternity Hospital will be a public hospital built on public land or to abstain, as it echoes a motion that was passed in the Dáil five years ago. I don't know what I'm going to do, said Harrigan who, the paper reminds us, resigned as the Green Party whip in 2020 after voting against a bill on tenancies. I'm surprised at the wording of the Sinn Féin motion on this subject. It's not particularly strong. I would find it difficult to vote against a more stark motion. Roisin Shortall, who's another member of the Yorkshire Health Committee, says there's still a huge gap in information as well. Maybe we might get uh, some of that information addressed by uh, Dr Jenny Hughes, as I said, who is a member of the National Maternity Hospital. She's going to be with us a little bit later in the programme. Uh, the main story in the Sunday Times, by the way, today, is from Simon Coveney, who says that the British government's Grandstanding over the Brexit protocol has more to do with the politics of Westminster than about finding solutions for Northern Ireland, which are some of the harshest criticisms made yet by the Irish government over Brexit. Um, We were talking more about that with Brian Rowan, as I said, a little bit later uh, in the programme as well. Irish Mail on Sunday. Fianna Gael Dirty Tricks to blame for the National Maternity Hospital route. Dirty Tricks by Fianna Gael. Somebody is calling shenanigans. Uh, Fianna Fáil has accused coalition partners Fianna Gael of dirty tricks over the National Maternity Hospital tobacco. Ministers and TDs from Fianna Fáil have made extraordinary claims about a coordinated campaign to undermine Health Minister Stephen Donnelly uh, and his plans for the hospital for political reasons. One Fianna Fáil minister told the Mail on Sunday that the National Maternity Hospital has brought coalition relations to their lowest level since the government was formed. The minister said, what happens to a collective voice coming from government? It is just politics. There are certain individuals in Fine Gael trying to damage Stephen Donnelly and there's just a certain amount of politics attached to it. Uh, though Fianna Fáil concedes that there are some in Fine Gael who do have genuine concerns about the plans for the hospital, Mr Donnelly's Fianna Fáil supporters say that others in the party have used the issue cynically to damage the health minister and there is a series of bullet points further down the piece explaining exactly what these grievances are. We're told that Fine Gael ministers and TDs have exploited arguments over them in the hospital for political reasons. Uh, Stephen Donnelly had to phone Leo Varadkar and ask him to get his Oroctus members back into line at a private meeting of the Oroctus Health Committee. That there was a coordinated attack, we're told, on Donnelly's plans carried out by Cabinet, which... Can't be difficult to point the finger there, considering that there are only seven or eight Finnegal members who actually get to attend cabinet meetings. Uh, we're told Finnegal TDs are unhappy that Donnelly's plan for the maternity hospital is better than the one they had. Quote. Finnegal ministers undermined Donnelly throughout the COVID 19 pandemic, it also adds. And senior Finnegall figures are directing coordinated attacks on the maternity hospital policy. Uh, that is uh, detailed extensively uh, inside the Irish Mail on Sunday. And finally, for now, the business post. Radical reforms needed to slash dairy emissions, according to a new report. An unprecedented cap and trade system on methane emissions uh, and a multi-million euro scheme to encourage farmers to move away from dairy having put forward as potential options to reduce emissions from ireland's agriculture sector these two proposals are among a suite of options in an interim report by a food division dairy group set up by charlie mcconnell in january to help advise on how emissions from dairy farming can be reduced the interim report states that the dairy farm dairy farming sector must transform its way of doing business if the sector is to achieve its legally binding targets under the latest climate action plan which do call for an emissions cut from agriculture of between 22 and 30 percent by the end of the next decade Uh, That is your tour of the front pages. We're joined in the studio by Jared Howland, who is a public affairs consultant, political commentator, former senior government advisor. And by Aideen Finnegan, who is a journalist and the presenter of the How to Pivot podcast, uh, as well as being heard regularly on these airwaves. uh, Indeed, in this studio. Indeed. uh, plentifully in the last couple of days. Uh, You're both very welcome this morning. Um, Aideen, I'll start with yourself. Um, I I don't want to spend too long on it, but I'm just kind of tickled by the extent of the dossier that appears to have been compiled by Fianna Fáil of uh, Fine Gael involved in some sort of dirty tricks campaign to undermine their own hospital plan.
1: Yeah, well, I, I mean, it is interesting because the um, it definitely this has turned into a bit of a political football. And obviously, um, I don't know, will you be more informed to talk about how Fine Gael uh, parliamentarians feel about the minister, hmm. uh, Stephen Donnelly, a blow-in into the party. Uh, but, it, I mean, it has become quite political in a way that it seems to have obscured the actual nuts and bolts of what's going on with the hospital. I was struck by Nasa Harrigan talking about that she has issues with the concern with the public procurement and the corporate nature of it Mm. and that the business case hasn't been finalised because I think that has been glossed over in the Ferrari. Uh, It has turned into, um, you know, accusations that people are just, you know, on a non-witch hunt and Mm. that uh, the Vatican influence is overstated and uh, when, you know, the the government would insist it's not there at all and indeed medics in the National Maternity Hospital would insist it's not there at all but actually there are issues that seem to be um, quite I think Senator Alice Mary Higgins in during the Oireachtas, um Health Committee hearings during the week mm. asked a very good question about if the lease is for 299 years and the lifespan of a hospital is only fifty to seventy years. If mm. there's no longer a hospital on the site, does that break the covenants? Does it break the terms of the lease? And is the government then on the hook for this site, which is not not to be used mm. as a maternity or, hospital? Or are
0: we actually on the hook for actually building four or five hospitals on this site? And we're only talking about one.
1: Exactly. Um, Justine McCarthy, writing in the Sunday Times today, is saying, "Why is the you know uh, talking about why is the leasehold?" Hospital being equated to ownership because the, um, you know, talking about this effect of ownership for 299 years. But the legal documents say that St. Vincent's um, Hospital Group can mortgage the building after Mm. 20 years. So I think there, you know, and and, and you had um, Simon McGarr, the solicitor on the show last week, who actually said in the first schedule of the lease, it says that any any the land, anything that's built on it.
0: Is is owned? Is strictly owned. speaking, yes. By Vincent Healthcare Group, yes. Yeah.
1: So uh, there, we have a lot of. I think that might be uh, contradicted later on in the contract.
0: Well the, there's the people can listen back to this on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by loud but the the thrust of it was that um, apparently the argument was that you had to establish exactly what you were renting in the first place or else it wouldn't make sense but that because the lease also effectively gave the state exclusive use of the facility for 299 years then if the building no longer existed when you're handing the land back then it was a sort of a moot point because Vincent's would be owning a building that they would never operate mm. w- was the argument back
1: OK so I mean there, there I think there's some clarity being sought as well by the Arathis Health Committee on that issue there. So I think that that that's, you know, quite apart from perhaps what is levelled at opponents about it being ideologically driven, their opposition, that there is um, some outstanding issues there. But, I mean, you can tell from re- just generally reading the room, this is going ahead. It's mm. You know, the Cabinet now supports that it, It's due to be signed off. The um, While there are many eminent people on both sides of the debate, it does seem that the people who oppose to it are in the minority and it looks like this this plan will be going ahead. So hopefully, mm. you know, there won't be, I mean, a bit of a gamble, I suppose, and that it'll be grand, but the leap of faith is being taken. Yeah, uh,
0: as I said, Gerard Howland is also with his public affairs consultant, political commentator and former uh, senior government advisor, occasional columnist now for the Irish Times as well. Um, Gerard, just to get straight out of the bat, you have some some previous professional experience advising the St Vincent's group, so let's just yeah. uh, just disclose that for the record so people don't think that it's being sort of hidden in any way. Um, are you surprised that the government is seems as determined to go ahead uh, despite some obvious disquiet on its own backbenches, and not apparently uh, entertain this idea that was floated in one of the papers on Friday about a legal codicil or something that would clarify the language that's already there which seemed to have been shot down as quickly as it was mentioned
2: well let's see about the fine detail of a codicil or otherwise let's see what happens in the next 48 hours I suppose the bigger question is am I surprised that it's going ahead And, and the answer is no it's for this reason so I understand the purpose of a National maternity Hospital moving out of Hollis Street to a St. Vincent's is that it is co-located with a major teaching hospital mm. uh, of which there are very few. In addition to which the Coombe is planned I believe to move to St. James's mm-hmm. and the uh, Rotunda to Blanchardstown. Yes, so that leaves psychology. the yeah. number of options very limited. And mm. I, I you can talk about opponents being ideologically driven I have to say I'd find No problem with people being ideologically driven. Mm. It's quite okay. It's kind of funny that's
0: become something of a dirty word, actually, isn't it?
2: You know, I've no problem with that. And I understand from first principle the attraction of public land and public ownership. I wish our health service was completely different. Mm. But it's not. And in the context of limited options and pressing time, uh, I'm not sure what other option the government has in relation to building a new national maternity hospital that is actually co-located with a major teaching mm,
0: hospital. And, and <laughs> I think everyone uh, ascribes to the ideal of co-location and everyone ascribes to the ideal of getting out of Hollow Street where it is. I think I, I saw it being described in some press clipping the other day as Ireland's first all-electric hospital when it was fully built in the 1930s, which, you know, if we're talking about hospitals that have a shelf life of 50, 70 years, they've been there for 90 and they'll be there for about 100 before they, they fully do get to move out. But one of the concerns, e- even if you park the the, the question mark about possible religious interference uh, as it's perceived by some this idea that the state wouldn't necessarily take this thing into direct ownership that you know you as you said yourself you would prefer if it wasn't this kind of hodgepodge this governance mix that if it was just fully state-owned state-operated state-managed i think most people would agree with that but then why accept some sort of managerial hodgepodge or why persist with the idea of the voluntary hospital model a century after the state came into being because I think the challenge for the state,
2: uh, of which Vincent's is an example, but there are many others, of upending the system as it is, um, is, is simply too much. would take such a long time to do. The state has expressed its disquiet and it has formulated its solution insofar as it can in something called care, which is apparently however convincing, our plan to fundamentally reform how health is delivered in the country. I'm not particularly optimistic by the way about slant care.
0: Mm. But insofar so does it prescribe th- the end of voluntary hospitals or at least the moving away of the model? It, indeed it does and,
2: and uh, a, a single waiting list and no preferential place in any waiting list for somebody just because they have private health insurance. Uh, and I don't see any of that happening anytime soon. I'm sure that's a big pity. Uh, but that is the reality. And it's also part of the reality that... Part of the very powerful constituency against this Mm. are people who have uh, private health insurance who have no intention of stepping away from the privilege that their premium buys them.
0: Um, what do you make, by the way, before I come back to Aidan, of the uh, the supposed allegation of dirty tricks being waged from within one arm of the coalition to undermine something which uh, ultimately this coalition is quite invested in? I thought uh, I think that's John Drennan's piece, is it? Is it John Lee or John Drennan? John, I think it's John uh, Lee this morning. Uh, John, John Lee. John Lee. John Lee. Group of so, sorry, yeah. I
2: thought that was uh, the best yarn I read <laughs> in any newspaper this morning because I love a good conspiracy. Um, st- it, it, perhaps it's slightly overstated, uh, but um, certainly Stephen Donnelly. I think has been the object of consistent kicking on the shins under the table by at least one if not more people in Fine Gael during his entire time as Minister of Health. Mm, uh,
0: the piece specifically uh, singles out the leader of the Shannad Regina Doherty as being one member of Fine Gael who is apparently trying to damage. Well Fina Regina
2: Doherty is in the Shannad so she's not close enough for her boot to reach his shin. I was
0: thinking. <laughs> I, I was thinking. That's
2: a dig on the upper house. There, I, I, I was. I, I, I was thinking of some of his cabinet colleagues.
0: Um, well, there seems to be some, some accusation that there was a coordinated attack at cabinet, and but of course that that's. Um, maybe in the eye of the beholder. Um, just, eight, just to mention Gavin sure. there
1: actually on the maternity hospital yeah. if people are looking for a good read on it today I think Michael Brennan's piece in the business post is really excellent it's kind of going back over you know raking over everything all over again but it has some really nice colour in it like uh, you know obviously uh, the St. Vincent's was founded in Stevens Green in 1834 and uh, it uh, twice Florence Nightingale had been refused a post there as a trainee nurse so there's lots of lovely colour in it <sighs> twice. as well. Yes <laughs> apparently so um, and there's lots of you know, um, interesting um takes on it. There's also what I found interesting was they have I haven't heard from Ronan Mullen in quite a while, but he was uh, ostensibly asked for his opinion on this for Michael Brennan's piece, mm. and that uh, you know, he is saying that the government will set up its a we, talking about how that they, it, this, the influence of the nun is completely lost and mm. that's a pity and that the government will get its abortions, this I'm quoting directly now, and these will happen in an institution called after St. Vincent. It is a scandalous and painful situation for Christians and others who value the tradition of church run hospitals providing high quality ethical health care that protects everyone equally. So, I mean, if that um, is a view that might gain traction, that might be mm. what protesters, I think, are trying to Anticipate. May gather pace over the coming decades. Uh, we
2: we say, so, so, yes. Yeah, I, I, I see, I I, I, I I don't see an advantage. It's a shocking disadvantage of being significantly older than either of you two. But but I I, uh, I, I clearly is. remember the uh, pro-life campaign in the early eighties. Mm. I remember the divorce referendum that was passed. The the, the defeat of divorce referendum yes. in the eighties, but the divorce referendum that was barely passed by the narrowest of margins mm. in, in the mid nineties, yeah. and of course all of this culture and ethos comes from the church Uh, and that is a very important big part of the story Mm. but a very big part of the story is that it was repeatedly endorsed uh, vehemently by Irish society again and again and again
0: So do do you think then to that extent that it's not so much the uh, Ireland wrestling with the remnants of church influence but it's Ireland wrestling with its own past?
2: Well this narrative that's now current about us versus the church is a lie Uh, We were the church, actually. I remember the the early 80s uh, and the number of people on the streets in the local community canvassing for that referendum. I remember people who I wouldn't have associated with any party politics of any kind being absolutely red in the face, going around and going on about that. I remember as well a lot of women Uh, uh, of a certain age uh, and younger who are very involved in that campaign in the local community where I lived. So this othering of all that to this exclusive, um, um, you know, leadership group that was somehow above us, beyond us, um, that we were um, hostage to. There were elements of all that for sure. But there's another element we choose now no longer to speak of which is our own deep involvement with, affiliation with and very strong support across society, across time for what we now say we abhor.
0: Um, someone else on Twitter, by the way, just pointed out that it's it's maybe unsurprising that there are some in one party who might use it to damage those in another party, especially in the run-up to an election cycle. Um, I, <laughs> I don't know when that election might be, but I suppose there's always the local elections two years away. Um, also have a, a texter uh, or a tweeter, on the record NT who says that the only facts about the National Maternity Hospital are that its constitution uh, obliges the hospital to provide all legal procedures without any religious influence and that clinically appropriate is a scientific matter uh, determined by the consensus of medical opinion um, clinically appropriate is a scientific matter determined by the consensus of, of medical opinion it's probably that ambiguity here that not everyone would agree with the same interpretation Aiden, that's, yeah. that's got us where we are
1: yeah I think so and I I, I her name escapes me now, but she was involved in drawing up the contracts. She was on primetime during the week. Um, she... Is it
0: one of the sisters, Alice... Uh, yes, Rogers, Alice Murphy. Alice Murphy, yes. It was it one of the sisters on... involved for the yes. uh, project, yeah.
1: And that she was saying that when they wrote, like the HSC asked to insert the clinically appropriate into the contract and that when they were drawing it up, they didn't anticipate that it could be flipped to mean hmm. what it, you know, what is suggested by Peter Boylan and others that it puts the decision-making, weights, yeah. weights that towards the medic rather than the woman well, the, who's asking. This, yes. But I think that's the point is yeah. that you couldn't imagine what could have been flipped well, to mean X, Y and Z. This
0: is why I, I put that point to Simon McGarr because this was the, the thrust of his concerns last week and we've invited um, Jenny Hughes of the National Maternity Hospital on as something of a counterpoint to have some some balance on, on either side over time. Um, but I, I put it to him that well if, if every party has the same understanding of what clinically appropriate means that then what is the concern that some other outside force might have a different interpretation of it. And he said, well, yeah, it has to be robust over time. And you don't know whether over time one person's understanding of what is clinically appropriate uh, might change. So maybe that's the reason why it has to be um, locked down. Uh, before we move on, Jared, any other pieces in today's papers about that that jump out at you that you wanted to single out?
2: No, other than, uh, as I say, my absolute favourite piece was, was John Lee because uh, I, I love the political. Uh, I think it has been politicised um, in, in terms of in internal government politics, and there's a political question in my mind. When this is over, in the next year or two, the dust has settled after a fashion because this hospital will not be opened, operating for many years to come, Mm -hmm. is will Fianna Fáil and Vina who are operating on very tight margins in terms of their support, or or indeed the Greens, what will the knock-on effect be, if any, two years from now? in terms of the decision that, as Aidan said, seems very likely to be be made. So the question
0: of of people holding the principle of this deal against them, even if the practice turns out uh, to be uh, not what uh, was feared.
2: Another way of putting it, that if the two centre parties in government uh, are doing this and are being being, you know, reiterating their status quo credentials as a result of it, do those advocating change, like Sinn Féin and others, will they somehow benefit from having been against it? Particularly with a generation, and particularly with younger women, um, who are le- less more likely to to, to be mm. feel very strongly about this. I'd be interested this. in
1: that as well because it, it's hard to measure. And I suppose one of the reasons why, apart from the you know the broad broad support for it in general um, at uh, political level, is that <laughs> I suppose. And I'm, I'm using my air quotes here because okay. I don't believe this. But, you know, angry feminists, in quotes, are easy to ignore compared to publicans or farmers or other lobby groups that have something tangible. Mm. And I think it will be interesting that they sort of are setting aside that uh, the opposition and obviously I don't uh, just to to clarify as well Mm. there were all manner of people at that protest yesterday so I'm I'm not you know lumping everyone into some derogatory term.
2: I, I think Gavin at the very least what this might do is solidify the coalition against the coalition
0: coalition of, of, of the, the external coalition for change against the governmental the, the, coalition correct yeah. um, uh, there's a few text and tweets which I was going to leave until after the break but one of them I want to read now actually just to, to put it to you before we maybe move on to another uh, topic Kieron um, says our thoughts and actions were controlled by the church through the state up until the 90s he says our contributor is blaming the slaves for the behaviour of the slave masters
2: well I was a slave I was an altar boy. I remember that era. And people uh, had no problem committing all sorts of sins to the extent of putting their souls in a mortal danger. There was fornication to be banned. There was tax avoidance on an industrial scale. Uh, So all sorts of things were going on in that slavish society. uh, So the idea that people were kowtowing uh, to the church across the board is nonsense. People had a remarkable capacity to do exactly what they wanted as it suited them, and turn up for church and uh, all all the rest at the same time. Call it hypocrisy. Call it practical So you
0: you think people were were capable all the while of the sort of mild uprising and rebellion against church te- teaching as has happened in the last 20 years that that was possible all along and people just chose not to do it.
2: I, I think it was to an extent and you always had a very small minority who were very anti-church and anti-status quo but but very small. But I think the great majority who uh, went along um well, had a degree of conviction and they also most of them had sort of spaces in their mind
0: and in their life what they did what they wanted regardless um, Just as an illustration of the uh, divided opinions and all of this Camilla is on Twitter and says with what's unfolding in the US I presume meaning uh, the, the repeal of, of Roe v.ersus Wade um, it's scandalous that we're being corralled into a deal that has clear flaws she says there are no, no, no nuns on the board but their ethos is littered through documents and the safeguards are clearly insufficient she says I worry for my daughters and yet Dan and Cork say Incredible BS being talked about this hospital. Build the damn thing. The lefty virtue signalling is off the chain. And Boylan, Peter Boylan's opposition appears to be a matter of ego. It is half past eleven this Sunday morning. Gavin Riley with you on the record until one o'clock this lunchtime on News Talk, 53106 for your texts. Uh, still joined in studio by Aideen Finnegan and Jared Howland. And also on the line now by Brian Rowan, former security editor of BBC Northern Ireland. Um, Brian, you might be familiar with because he's come onto the show a couple of times to talk about uh, events and impasses, uh, rather, supposed non events, really, uh, north of the border. <coughs> Um, his last book was called Political Purgatory The Battle to Save Stormont and the Play for New Ireland and that was about the Cash for Ash scandal and the three year impasse that it caused um, Brian I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth by suggesting that your your ultimate conclusion at the end of the book was that if Stormont collapsed another time that it basically mm. would be beyond saving is that still how you feel now?
3: Well I, I think I said if it feels again it should feel forever and my point about that Gavin is that how many times can can something break before you realise you need you need something new and we have to remember that in january 2020 the last rescue mission and you were about Stormont in that period mm-hmm. uh, Stormont was saved by the two governments by the british and the irish governments by julian smith and simon coveney with the new decade new approach agreement uh, they put that document on the table and they dared the five parties to reject it now Stormont hadn't met or the executive hadn't been in place for over a thousand days at that stage so uh, you know, there's a credibility issue here. And, you know, you read the headlines of, of yesterday, the Irish Times talking about Stormont and Limbo again, and uh, the newsletter headline, Prime Minister Flies In To Deal With Crisis. Mm. Uh, I think there's a couple of words missing from that headline uh, because it's a crisis he's created. And Boris Johnson, do you hear, do you hear tomorrow?
0: Is that to say then, Brian, that the uh, the, the pretenses under which Stormont was got back up and running two years ago were actually kind of under false pretenses, that the parties were bullied into it and this is the consequence now?
3: Well, well it took that uh, initiative by, by Julian uh-huh. Smith and Simon Coveney. Uh, it was a joint government initiative. I remember standing on that cold hill in, in, in Stormont in January 2020 where they did uh, the joint news conference. A number of the parties were still reading... The detail of the document at that stage, but I think it took that initiative uh, to put Stormont back together again. I think if it, if it had been left to uh, the five main parties, that conversation, that talks process would have gone in circles and continued in circles uh, for for a period longer. So you know, much of the of the last mandate was was kind of in deep freeze, and here we are at the start of a, a new mandate for Stormont. Uh, No speaker elected, no first or deputy first minister, no executive caretaker ministers in place, uh, and people looking at this place, again, as as a political failure. uh, And um, the need for some initiative that that puts the politics of of this place on on firmer ground. I talked about uh, Julian Smith and Simon Coveney. Um, They both came to that negotiation with a lot of energy, they were able to come up with the compromises. Uh, I don't have that confidence in, in Boris Johnson that you know he will come here and make anything better. Um, that's not his record. Uh, the protocol, which is the big standoff issue at the moment, is an extension of the Brexit deal that he mm. that he negotiated. That line is often left out of the script. You know when we're told about the protocol, that's not that that's that's not working. Um, it excludes the fact that. Um, that the Brexit project uh, that, that Johnston was central to is is what destabilised relations here in the first place. Um,
0: and I suppose that, that brings us to a fairly crucial point about what's different this time around as well, because uh, as you've, you've outlined, mm. and you're, you're familiar with the, the many impasses and suspensions and adjournments and, and mm. even outright abolitions of Stormont that there's been over the years, but they've often been capable of being put back together through some sort of mm. joint initiative of the British and Irish governments. But this time yeah. around... The issue which has collapsed, dormant, which is the DUP's, uh, you know, protest about the protocol, is not something which can be resolved by those two governments working hand in hand. Dublin doesn't really have a role here, which means that the prognosis for even getting it back up and running in the short term must be very lean.
3: Well, it's a Johnson battle with, uh, with, the, with the EU, and um, and that's the point I make, that, that he doesn't have a record for making things better here. It's his Brexit deal that created the, pro- the protocol, Uh, the sea border, uh, you know, which he talked about over his dead body. Um, And I made the point uh, to you just uh, a moment or two ago, um, Gav, you were around Stormont in in January uh, 2020 Mm -hmm. uh, when Smith and Coveney got that new decade, new approach, uh, agreement over the line. Uh, Johnson arrived at Stormont on a Monday to steal a slice of the success, if you like, and then he sacked Julian Smith a few weeks later mm. in, a, in a cabinet reshuffle. So you don't have that Smith-Covney relationship here. And and I think, you know, we, we, we can't just look at this uh, political moment and this difficult political moment in the context of uh, the protocol alone. Uh, there is a direction of travel in the politics of this place, which is unnerving and unsettling the unionist community. So... Look at the post-Brexit period. In 2017, Unionists lost their overall majority at Stormont. In 2019, they lost their second European seat when there was a huge aff- effort within that election to ensure uh, that, that Remain would take a second seat. And mm-hmm. Naomi Long had um, a remarkable uh, performance in, in, in that election, right. the Alliance leader, uh, to win to win a seat. 2019, the UK general election, unionists no longer hold the majority of northern ireland seats at westminster then you get to 2021 and the realization and the the reality of the sea border and and in unionist minds not just those new post brexit trading arrangements but a sea border that in their minds uh, creates further difference and distance between this place and the rest of the united kingdom so it becomes a, an, an issue about the uh the constitutional status of Northern Ireland and the union itself, and then you get through to the election of just a week or so ago, Uh, Sinn Féin emerges as the largest party, now in position to nominate for first minister. And in the unionist mind, that's another loss. So I I think if we look at this only in terms uh, of the protocol, we're kind of missing uh, the wider frame and the wider point. That, That direction of travel... Um, it, it's certainly unsettling and unnerving for well, uh, the unionist community.
0: Yeah, let, let me bring you back to, to to your first point about how you you might have to reconsider whether power sharing or whether the Stormont arrangements, as they currently exist, are fit for purpose if they keep breaking mm. down uh, over so many times. Um, not to make you into some sort of fantasy George Mitchell uh, character, but there's yeah. been a lot of talk about the the rise of the alliance and whether now there should be reconsideration of power sharing so that you could maybe. Mm have some, you know, some involvement with the other designation that maybe you could have mm. some sort of administration cobbled together that doesn't necessarily require the consent of both of the larger communities. Uh, I imagine, yeah. given the place that unionism is in, that it would be a bit of a powder keg if you were to exclude them from a new governance. But if power sharing right now doesn't work, then, then what is the future? What might work? What? Could well,
3: work? I, I think if you go to a new negotiation, then then everything is on the table again. And certainly that reform of the institutions that would bring that, that designation of other into play would be would be one of the, the issues most definitely on the table. And I think this is the other point that is missed in our politics at this stage, Gavin, that rise of that third pillar. the It's a, a much more significant and influential uh, player within our politics now. Alliance doubling, more than doubling
1: yeah. their
3: representation at Stormont. Um, in the election just a week ago. Now 17 members there, they had they had eight in the, in the last um, assembly election. I mentioned Naomi Long winning that uh, European seat, Stephen Farry in that remarkable 2019 general election, winning a seat for Alliance in North Down, which I, I, I think unionists probably believe their name was on that seat um, before the election. So that third pillar is becoming much more significant within our politics. And we had a lot of talk pre-election that if Sinn Féin emerged as the largest party in the position uh, to nominate for first minister, and this was Geoffrey Donaldson saying this, then the, the demand would become louder for a border poll. Now, one thing that isn't often discussed in that border poll conversation is that neither green nor orange can win a border poll, that it is that third pillar within our politics, Mm. uh, and it will be its mood and mind on that question of unity versus union that will decide a border poll if and when uh, that that referendum is held. So that is a significant uh, new development Mm. uh, and a growing new development within our politics, that that designation of other. And how in this post-Brexit era, it has become, as I say, much more significant. And influential within the politics of this place.
0: Yeah, I'm always minded of the, the Chinese proverb. I don't know whether it's meant to be a praise or a genuine good wish or a curse about living in interesting times, but they, they certainly are interesting times. Uh, Brian Rowan, thank you as always uh, for your insight this morning. Brian Rowan is a former security editor for the BBC in Northern Ireland and the author of Political Purgatory, which is a really good read uh, about the last time that Stormont found itself in a something of an impenetrable impasse. Um, still joined in studio by uh, Aiden Finnegan and by Jurt Howland. Jurt, um, you were a special advisor at the Department of the Taoiseach, not at the time of Good Friday, but very shortly afterwards you were there for for eight years so you'd have some familiarity with what it took to get the place up and running and the maintenance uh, that was required in the meantime Um, Do you have uh, the same pessimism as Brian does about the future and whether anything in the current position is salvageable? I don't think
2: that the structures as ordered uh, under the current St Andrews uh, arrangement Mm. um, are, are likely, not impossible but likely to work again soon I'm I'm looking particularly at a piece that Owen O'Malley has in the Sunday Independent I'm remembering a piece that Michael McDougall had in the Irish Times a few weeks ago and essentially their premise is the same that we're into some long period of renegotiation of Good Friday stroke St Andrews Uh, what O'Malley is saying in the Sunday Independent is that rather than have a necessary involvement of both the two largest parties that both should have a right first call Mm on going in but should either not wish to it will be open to a coalition of the willing to form an administration.
0: So in this instance, if the DUP were to did decide not, no, that you, you, you would go to the Ulster Unionists, despite their loss in seats, that you would go to them then as having the next option and say, well, do you guys want to do No, I,
2: if, if the DUP did not go in, it
0: will be open to all others to form a coalition. Okay. Uh, that's his version right. of it. But, 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 so you would then revert to the Alliance or someone else or if you can yes, find a majority in there, patch it together.
2: In, indeed. The problem is, how do you get from there to here? And if you did, what would the consequence be? And, you know, could that be a powder keg? And Mm -hmm. the answer is yes, because you have unionism in retreat uh, and under siege in its own mind uh, over many years. It doesn't see really any of the things over the past 20 years, Good Friday, St Andrews, as as being particularly positive and the loss of seats and status and all Mm -hmm. the rest. And the founding purpose of Northern Ireland 101 years ago was a Protestant state for Protestant people. Mm -hmm. And the fact of Michelle O'Neill being a positive First Minister means that project has ended. Ended in disaster in its own terms. However, that does not provide a basis for a border poll. And what we have to be very, very careful of is lurching from one majoritarianism to another. Mm. And that's precisely, in my view, what a border poll would be. And there is a challenge for unionism, but it's also a challenge for Sinn Féin. How does a party that talks about a united Ireland morning, noon and night change the fact that it is the leading piece of toxicity in against the united ireland in northern ireland in a border poll to people who are not convinced supporters already
0: uh 18 Finnegan, this is very much honors maths for before lunchtime on oh a God. sunday but when yeah, I get so. it, so. <laughs> <laughs> but when like uh, well, i'm kind of reaching the conclusion though that, that if um, if people who have been around stormont for ages in- increasingly are of the opinion that it's going to be next to impossible or certainly very unlikely that the current system is going to work anymore that you can go back to power sharing like we've had for a lot of the last quarter of a century and if unionism is in retreat and if there is going to be shortly perhaps uh, you know republican administrations north and south it may not be the mandate for a border poll but you sort of begin to realize that actually maybe the sands really are shifting because if you can't fix the current arrangement and any future arrangement is going to be undermined by the largest party wanting to end it you kind of reach the conclusion that maybe a border poll isn't as far away as many people might think.
1: Yeah, I wonder. I, I don't know. When you say unionism is in retreat, I'm not sure it is. I think maybe hardline unionism is. Um, OK. But, uh, I mean, notwithstanding all the the, re, the dates that Brian put mm. out there. But one of the interesting things about Storm not getting back up and running is that we, he's talking about the third pillar. We're not going to get to see the chance that the Alliance Party has to be the voice for that moderate unionist. And uh, how they, what, their political machinations would play out in terms of calls for a border poll. And I i think it's i think it's tactical, obviously, that the DUP didn't um, go back into storm and kind of throw their toys out of the pram over the protocol, which mm. I know that they have genuine misgivings over, but that they are perhaps overstated in the context of what's going on. Um, but also that it denies the Alliance Party a chance to really outshine them on issues that they mm. have traditionally been... So steadfast on that are not related to identity politics yeah. that are in you know to do with abortion Gee, that, rights. That's a
0: tactic that, that they've now decided. Whatever about not have forming an executive, let's not even give any other platform to any other party well, to show what they could do. You
1: see, this is the chance that um, I mean, the Alliance Party no doubt has taken some of the DUP seats. Mm. So, you know, mm. to give them mm. a chance to to, to actually yeah, show, show them what up. You could do with it. Yeah. yeah,
2: and of course the TUV which is the real hardline yeah. uh, Unionist Party, by splitting the DUP voters, help alliance in a number of seats, mm. uh, which is a paradox. But this crisis, this standoff, this awfulness helps the DUP and Sinn Féin both respectively, I think. How so? Because we're talking about them. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wait, one Gavin, thing worse than being talked you know, about, I suppose, yeah. Uh, exactly. And and they will dominate um, in in the ether uh, where there is an absence of an up an and running administration with a far Broader platformer of players. Mm. Uh,
0: interesting thoughts. Do keep your thoughts coming. There's loads coming in about that, uh, and also oddly enough about the Eurovision. Uh, to five three one zero six and on the record NT eleven forty nine and on the record. Gavin Riley with you until one o'clock this lunchtime uh, here on News Talk five three one zero six for your texts on the record NT is our hashtag and on Twitter right now I'm running a snap poll which is only going to be open for another five minutes or so. It is asking whether the government should buy a new ministerial jet, and the reason I'm asking is because there is a story by Ken Fox which appears today in both the Sunday Times and in the Sunday Independent about how the Taoiseach found himself stranded in Brussels inside the last three months. Eighteen. tell us more.
1: This is a great little story. So Michal Martin was stranded in Brussels after the Air Corps plane scheduled to fly them home broke down so they got out with no problem so the government Learjet is you know um, undergoing repairs so it's out of commission so it, it was in a Casa Maritime Patrol aircraft that was uh, deployed Maritime
0: Patrol aircraft
1: Maritime Patrol okay. aircraft so
0: something which is usually you know keeping an eye out for literal piracy or exactly. maybe Rus- Russian military exercises <laughs> indeed was sent to bring the shirt on from Brussels well,
1: well no it went It went out to Brussels as well with no problem but it was in Brussels it, it, had, it had a bit of a hitch so instead a third aircraft a smaller PC-12 which because of its single engine is not considered ideal for a use by a Taoiseach or President had to be dispatched. So this caused tensions between the Department of Defence and Defence Forces over the last minute snag and there was a, a, an official um, correspondence to the Air Corps saying it's imperative that they're notified of any major issues related to, you know, the Ministerial Air Transport Service mm. and that there was no notification and that this basically that the, we have an ageing um, Learjet that perhaps it's coming to the end of its life cycle. It's it's 19 Mm. Uh, it's old enough to vote now, and uh, <laughs> uh, it, it it that it should we need a, a new one basically because uh, I, we can't be using this maritime jet.
0: Uh, that Learjet is uh, welcome to vote on the poll. The hashtag is on the record. NT. Uh, I am uh, at Gav Riley on Twitter. Um, th- this is the the second time that such issues have been raised because I remember a couple of years ago the government previously had a second jet, a Gulfstream jet, uh, which was sent off for its annual service in Georgia, I think, in Atlanta. And they discovered when they sent it for its annual service that actually the thing was on the on the cusp of falling apart and that the repair costs would be prohibitive. And for, for optics reasons at the time, the government opted against replacing it. So it's been relegated to this one other jet. Now... A Learjet, look, by its name, it's, it's fancy it's the, the usual gold standard for um, executive travel. But if it is coming towards the end of its life and you can't always rely on it, then it does beg some questions as to how our ministers get from A to B. And I was mentioning all of that uh, off air, Jared, and then you told us about how in your time in government building, somebody came in with little dioramas for what a new jet well, we was had, going to look like.
2: Full, we had the full airfix model, uh, but just to say it, A-Dean, inside government, that aircraft is referred to as the CASA. And the CASA, I understand, is so old, it was flying when the Eighth Amendment of the Constitution was passed in the early 1980s. Just to put it in a political context, right? right. Um, It's almost impossible to speak on it, the level of noise on the inside. And you would need on to the, be present, the, the present the present operating this, jet. No, this casa. Oh, okay, thing, sorry, that uh, I mean. uh, the t shirt has been ferried around on the occasions when it flies, mm. and to use the bathroom facility. And I'm using those words in their loosest sense. Okay, it would be helpful if you had a past life as an ac- an acrobat or a ballet dancer.
0: OK, uh, it is utterly unfair Right, for everything but, and anything. But there is the, the question mark about needing to have some sort of operative service that gets ministers to all of the engagements that they have mm. in, in Europe or occasionally in, in North America. And then there's the optics and also the climate impact of the government buying itself some private transport, which is so heavy on fuels at a time when we're supposed to be cutting back. on. So
2: there's nothing to do about this that won't be horribly politically unpopular and of course excoriated by the opposition who will love to use it when they get into government and have the chance. Uh, Having a jest that gets ministers around Europe, if not around the world, but certainly around Europe at speed with civil servants where they can work comfortably and speak in confidence.
0: Which you do Sp- speaking in confidence is a thing that's been pointed out to me actually because a any, lot of ministers currently fly uh, through regular scheduled commercial mm. services when they're going to Brussels and some of them have, have uh, remarked to me before and they didn't say this by way of complaint but they have told me that even if you're sitting beside... Your minister, for example, and the two of you are in a bucket of seat. because mm. you're going over to Brussels, and um, that you don't feel comfortable even opening up your own documents and reading through all the briefing notes because you are sitting beside a civilian, and that basically you Correct. can't do any work and per se I- on the plane. If that civilian has an inquiring mind and has a bog standard mobile
2: phone and puts on a recording device, uh presumably they can pick up every syllable you speak, mm. even if you're speaking quietly. So commercial flights are totally insecure from that. Talk, talking point of view. And there's the point that T-shirt key ministers need to be got at speed and sometimes at the drop of a hat. It's not value for money that are kept waiting for the next commercial flight hours later or a day later. It's the cost of doing business for a small country And, of course, it's going to be completely unpopular and there'll be all sorts of belly aching if
0: it's done. Aideen, before I tell you the results of the poll, which is just about to close, your thoughts?
2: Uh, Well, I just
1: wonder, can it not be treated like any other consumer product and, you know, uh, evaluated on the merits of a new plane? And does it have to be a Learge? You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what the spec is for these very... Jer, do
2: you know? No, I wouldn't. I'm not going to get into the technical aspect of this, but I can remember in the sort of, was it 06, approximately 05, and the Learjet had to be replaced. And what should have been done in hindsight, you just get a new one of that, the up to date model of that mm. now. And it would have happened after a brouhaha pretty efficiently. Mm. But no, uh, our people had a better idea that we would do, as Aideen said, review the spec. Yes. Disaster, Adrian. Oh. And the spec came back. We could have this. This thing that was a bit bigger, you could have 25 yeah. instead of 15 seats. So and it was the full, the
0: full glossy manufacturer's brochure about how wonderful of that, it could but be. that disaster
2: yeah. struck because of very efficient opposition at as I remember, Googled this. Or if there was Google at the time, maybe they did add other forms of research, and got a version of this in picture where instead of having 25 seats and being very matter of fact, it had barely a dozen seats, enormous luxurious armchair types things for full succession some, a material, a basically full succession the, ma- the, yeah. ma- ma- material, barely short of the full jacuzzi, and said to Bertie Ahern across the door, "How dare you spend <laughs> our money on this sort of luxury?" Well, was, and that that, yeah. that jet went down in in flames on <laughs> the Metaphorically. because um, AD and somebody looked at the spec,
0: spec. Uh, well I this, this is the, at some point they're either going to buy it and they're going to be accused of being like, you know trying to buy Ivory's back scratchers or they won't buy it and eventually we won't have the transport to get them around and we'll complain that Ireland has made look a shambles uh, the poll is closed on Twitter thank you to everyone who participated nearly 500 people voted in that uh, 54% of people say no the government should not buy a new ministerial jet in spite of the unreliability of the current service 28.7% said yes and 1 in 6 people were just wanted to gawk and just wanted to know the answers. Thank you thank you to everyone for participating. Uh, thank you both for coming to studio this morning Jared How and A Finnegan. thank you both very much. on the record with Gavin Riley brought to you by PWC
3: Sunday morning at 11 on News Talk.